This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. There's absolutely no transparency whatsoever right now in terms of content moderation. Some platforms have given us a better glimpse at how they do it than others, but overall, um, the, 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 the criteria are, are different from one platform to another, what, what gets taken down, why, how, when. Uh, we, we want transparency so that Canadians know how this is done. Um, and obviously, uh, if I refer you back to my, to, to my mandate letter, so the instructions gave me when I became heritage minister, uh, there, is, there is this notion of a 24-hour takedown. Um, this is something that uh, we we would want we want we want to do in Canada. That was then Canadian Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault talking just over a year ago about the government's legislative plans for online harms. Guibault would continue to say that a bill was just around the corner for months, even promising legislation just as Parliament was shutting down for the summer. This week's podcast departs from the typical approach, as this past week was anything but typical. As you're about to hear, I obtained access to hundreds of previously secret submissions to the government on online harms. Those submissions cast the process in a new light, and I want to take the time to walk through what has happened, what we know, and how this fits within the broader internet regulation agenda of the Canadian government. Now, while Guibault promised a bill, what Canadians actually got was a consultation. My immediate response last July was that the consultation was, and I'll quote, better characterized as an advisory notice, since there are few questions, options, or apparent interest in hearing what Canadians think of the plans. Instead, the plans led by Canadian Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault pick up where Bill C-10 left off treating freedom of expression as a danger to be constrained through regulations, and the creation of a bureaucratic superstructure that includes a new digital safety commission, digital tribunal to rule on content removal, and social media regulation advisory board. Now, the consultation ran throughout the election period, concluding just days after the vote. I wrote soon after that there'd been some press coverage of the consultation from the Globe and Mail and National Post, but that Canadian heritage officials had said that they wouldn't post the submissions they received, claiming some, and I'll quote, may contain confidential business information. Now, this continued for months. The results of the government's online harms consultation remained shrouded in secrecy, and as it did, I launched a webpage that featured the publicly available submissions that people had chosen voluntarily to post. That included 25 submissions from organizations and companies, as well as six individual expert submissions, including one of my own. It was clear that there was criticism, but by then there was a new heritage minister, Pablo Rodriguez, and he maintained the decision to keep the extent of the criticism secret by not releasing the submissions. Earlier this year, Rodriguez did release a What We Heard report that still kept the actual submissions from the public but provided a summary that left little doubt that the government's plans had been widely criticized and required a policy reset. I have to say that I responded favorably, stating that the report did a good job of summarizing the feedback and that it didn't shy away from owning up to the criticism. A month later, the minister launched a panel to review the online harms issue. 
That panel includes some excellent members, including co-chair Emily Laidlaw, Taylor Owen, Heidi Torek, and Vivek Krishnamurthy, all of whom coincidentally have appeared on this podcast. Yet this week, I came to realize that I'd been deceived, not about the quality of the panel, for which I have high hopes, but rather on the report, which significantly underplayed the criticism. How do we know this? Well, immediately after the surprise decision to keep submission secret, I filed an Access to Information Act request to compel disclosure by law of the consultation submissions. It took many months, but this week the department released the results. Now, there might be some submissions that are excluded. The release from the department isn't clear, and we know that third parties may, under some circumstances, object on certain grounds to disclosure. But nevertheless, what has been disclosed, hundreds of additional submissions add up to a file with over a thousand pages. And you can access that file for yourself. I'll post information in the show notes on how to do so. There are several key takeaways from the broader package of consultation submissions. First, the government's determination to keep the consultation submissions secret until compelled to disclose them by law. I think eviscerates its claim to support open, transparent government. There is simply no good reason to use secrecy as the default for a government consultation. Now, officials claimed, as you heard, that submissions might contain confidential business information, but I think the actual results demonstrate that that argument had little merit. Indeed, the government could have used openness as a default and redacted any confidential information as needed. As I wrote this week, quote, a government that supports openness should not be forced to disclose information from a public consultation only under threat of failing to comply with its own access to information laws. Now, second, the participation of the Internet platforms was more extensive than previously disclosed. While Google released its submission, there were also submissions from the Business Software Alliance, Microsoft, Pinterest, TikTok, and Twitter. Further, in addition to TechSavvy and Two Cows, two independent Canadian ISPs and internet infrastructure participants, the large Canadian telecom companies, Bell, Rogers, Telus, Kojiko, Quebec Or, and Shaw, provided a joint submission. These submissions contain important data that should have been publicly available, not hidden by the government. In fact, there are other notable submissions, including one from the CBC, which argued for a special recognition of threats to journalists as content that incites violence and hate speech, as well as one from the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, which called months ago, well before the current war with Russia, for the removal of Russia Today from the Canadian broadcast system. Third, the criticism of the government's plans were even more widespread than previously revealed. Indeed, reviewing the submissions uncovers very few supportive comments of the plans from either organizations or the hundreds of individual submissions. For example, the large telecom companies that I mentioned a moment ago warned that the proposal could disincentivize investments in 5G networks, and they opposed disclosing basic subscriber information without judicial authorization, an issue we've talked about previously on this podcast. Their submission, along with some others in the sector, reinforce how inexplicable and damaging it is that Innovation Science and Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne has seemingly abandoned digital and internet policy. 
vesting responsibility in Canadian heritage when it isn't at all clear what Canadian heritage has to do with online harms anyway, has, I think, been disastrous for the development of balanced, effective digital policies in Canada. The most notable submission amongst the many, I think, came from Twitter, and it's a submission that attracted significant media coverage. It warned that the proactive monitoring of content envisioned by the government, and here I'll quote from Twitter, sacrifices freedom of expression to the creation of a government-run system of surveillance of anyone who uses Twitter. Even the most basic procedural fairness requirements you might expect from a government-run system, such as notice or warning, are absent from this proposal. The requirement to share information at the request of the Crown is also deeply troubling. Further, it didn't pull any punches with respect to the government's website blocking plans, which were also part of the consultation, quite literally liking it to China, North Korea, and Iran. Again, let me quote directly from their submission. The proposal by the government of Canada to allow the Digital Safety Commissioner to block websites is drastic. People around the world have been blocked from accessing Twitter and other services in a similar manner as the one proposed by Canada by multiple authoritarian governments, China, North Korea, and Iran, for example, under the false guise of online safety impeding people's rights to access information online. Just to continue with their comment, further, there are no checks and balances on the commissioner's authority, such as the requirement of judicial authorization or warnings to service providers. The government should be extremely mindful of setting such a precedent. If Canada wants to be seen as a champion of human rights, a leader in innovation and in net neutrality globally, it must also set the highest standards of clarity, transparency, and due process in its own legislation. Now, I know that some have responded by saying, listen, why should we even trust what large tech companies have to say about an online harms consultation that, after all, had in mind more regulation of those very companies? But in fact, even the groups that might have been expected to support the proposal were critical. For example, the National Association of Friendship Centers, which represents Indigenous communities, warned that the changes to the CSIS Act, which were also in the consultation, those related to obtaining transmission data or basic subscriber information, posed, again, a quote, a legitimate risk of governing bodies weaponizing this legislation to identify protests as anti-government especially when Indigenous people across Turtle Island articulate their inherent rights and sovereignty. The Canadian Centre for Child Protection, which was certainly supportive of some elements and has been actively involved in dealing with child pornography images quite literally for decades in Canada, warned against the plan to offload the funding of the regulation to the internet companies themselves, saying that we strongly urge the government to reconsider the optics of directly linking the funding of these offices to the very entities being regulated by it. The Safe Harbor Outreach Project feared, and I quote, the proposed digital harms framework has grave potential to hurt sex workers, 2SLGBTQ plus folks, BIPOC communities, and other marginalized populations. The Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, which has been an outspoken advocate to deal with deal more effectively with online harms, noted that a one-size-fits-all model is not appropriate. While online hate may be detestable, it may not be comparable to the imminent risk or serious harm caused by a potentially pending terrorist attack. Put simply, 
with respect to reporting to police the threat of bombing a building is not the same as espousing hatred. Finally, the National Council of Canadian Muslims, who whose submission also got attention, stated that, simply put, the legislation as it stands now could inadvertently result in one of the most significant assaults on marginalized and racialized communities in years. NCCM does not participate in hyperbole, but this is gravely, dangerously concerning. Canadian Heritage Minister Rodriguez would presumably like Canadians to simply move past the consultation by arguing that there is now a new panel that's been tasked with reviewing the issues and making recommendations. Yet I think that there remain several concerns, both about the approach we've seen with respect to online harms and the broader Internet regulation plan that shouldn't be overlooked or swept under the rug. First, I want to reiterate. The secrecy associated with the consultation was wrong for any government and particularly wrong for a government that ran on creating an open and transparent government. In fact, it was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau who introduced a private member's bill in 2014 that he said would create a government that is open by default. Only disclosing submissions when compelled to do so by the Access to Information Act is not transparency. To see the government's commitment abandoned and it revert to the very secrecy it criticized while in opposition should not be overlooked. The online harms policies, I think, were awful, but the Canadian heritage consultation process was, well, a betrayal. Second, the notion that the government was simply consulting on some ideas and will now course correct requires Canadians to overlook the reality that the actual plan was to introduce this as a bill last year. As you heard off the top of this podcast, then-Heritage Minister Gibo promised the bill for months. If the consultation read like the government had already made up its mind, it's because most believe Canadian heritage officials had. In fact, most believe that the only reason there even was a consultation is that then-Bill C-10 became controversial, Gibo proved to be a poor communicator, and the government decided that with an election upcoming, it was too risky to introduce another internet regulation bill. But make no mistake, the proposals that we now learn were roundly criticized by Canadians from across the spectrum was the government's plan. Third, that what we heard report that Rodriguez released significantly understated the extent of public criticism and feedback. In some instances, it omitted it altogether such as the CBC recommendation for special protection for journalists, or as I mentioned, the telecom company's concerns about mandating disclosure of basic subscriber information without judicial oversight. Where the criticisms are mentioned, at times they're softened. For example, there is nothing approaching the impact of Twitter's actual comments on procedural fairness. Further, without revealing who said what, the impact was ultimately dulled. Fourth, and perhaps most importantly, this is part of a broader internet regulation plan. For Canadian Heritage and Minister Rodriguez, he's been explicit that there are three elements. The Online Streaming Act, Bill C-11, the Online News Act, Bill C-18, and the rebranded Online Safety Act, which will be forthcoming. All three start from the same position, namely one that sacrifices freedom of expression for regulation much of it overseen by the CRTC. In the case of Bill C-11, Rodriguez has insisted that he's addressed prior concerns, but the reality is that his bill still opens the door to regulating user-generated content in a manner unlike any other country in the world. As for Bill C-18, 
mandating payments simply for facilitating access to news is similarly unprecedented and runs the risk of quickly leading to a less independent press with massive government intervention into the news sector. The decision to largely cave to lobbying pressure has resulted in what I believe is an unprincipled internet regulation strategy that risks Canada's reputation on the global stage as a supporter of fundamental freedoms and net neutrality. Seen in that light, the online harms consultation wasn't an outlier, but rather is reflective of the government's plans for regulating the internet. In the weeks ahead, I'll continue to speak out on these issues and cover them on the podcast. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.